You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome back to our course on the Old Testament. I am Father Kenneth Baker, the editor of the Homiletic and Pastoral Review. And in our first segment, we covered Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, also called the Torah or the Book of Moses. And in today's segment, I want to cover the next two books, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua and Judges. So those are the four books that we're going to cover in this particular, in this half hour. So let's take the book of Numbers. Now, the book of Numbers, the fourth book of the Torah, covers the movement of the holy people, the chosen people, from Kadesh, Barnea, and southern Israel, down near Arabia, up north and opposite Jericho. Well, the first thing that happens there is that a numbering of the tribes in the Old Testament, genealogies are very important. So they give the genealogies of the various tribes and how many people there were. We don't know exactly how many there were. They, they give the number of 600,000 out in the desert, but that's probably unrealistic. That number probably comes from much later during the time of David when he did a census of all the people in Israel. If there were 600,000 men, warriors, out in the desert with wives and children, there'd have to be over two million people which seems to be unrealistic for the amount of area that we're talking about here. So, but the notion here is that God promised a large number of descendants of Abraham in the promise. And so that's what that signifies as a very large number. It's not intended to be taken as a literal number of 600,000. So this particular book goes back to Moses as the whole Torah does, but it was modified and edited as time went by and was probably finished and reached the state in which we now have it around the year 500 or 450 after the destruction of Jerusalem and after the captivity in Babylon. So this book tells of the story of the 38 years of the people out in the desert and then also of their moving up north and just getting ready to enter into the promised land. That is the invasion of the promised land. And this is the story of how God acted in history to guide and protect his chosen people from Mount Sinai to the Jordan River. God was always in their midst to protect them, to teach them, to help them in their difficulties, and to punish them when they rebelled against him. So this is the story then of the journey of the people from Egypt and Kadesh Barnea up into the Promised Land, the plains of Moab. They get involved in a couple of battles with the neighboring peoples during that time. There's murmuring and rebellion on the part of the people. This murmuring and rebellion causes great anguish to Moses. And at one point, God threatens to destroy all these people and just keep Moses and raise up a new people. But Moses falls on his face and worships God and pleads for the people and said that he'd rather die in their place, and God forgives them and saves them 
and protects them and guides them. He forgives their fault because of the intercessory prayer of Moses. One place in the Bible refers to Moses as the most humble of all men. Now this time in the desert or in the wilderness was a time of discipline for the Old Testament people. God was training them. He was teaching them his ways and purifying them before they went into the promised land. So during this time, they defeat the two kings, Sihon and Og, and the king of Moab. And also this is the time that Balak, the king of Moab, hires this prophet Balaam and his ass that talks to him. And Balaam is hired to curse the Israelites. And every time he tries to curse them, he blesses them instead. God does not allow him to curse them, but he has to bless them. And as they move out, they stop at various places and they finally end up across the Jordan, opposite the Jericho River. And there, three of the tribes want to stay. They want to be settled on the east of the river. That is the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gab, and the tribe of Manasseh. They wanted to stay on the other side. Moses said, okay, you can settle over here, but you've got to send your warriors with their brethren across the river in order to fight against the Philistines and the Canaanites and to occupy the land. So they agreed to do that, and they agreed to go and fight to overcome the people that lived there because they're going into the Palestine, but the Philistines were there, the Canaanites were there, and uh, God directed his people to fight against them, to wipe them out, and to take over the land and occupy it. That was the land flowing with milk and honey that had been promised to them by the Lord. Now, here again, one of the theological ideas is that God operates in history. He is protecting his people, he's guiding them, and he leads them up to Jericho under the leadership of, especially of Joshua and Caleb in order to go into the promised land. One commentator on this particular book says with regard to the meaning of the book of Numbers, which again, for readers, may be a little bit boring with all the numbers and genealogies and so forth until you get to the story part, he says that what this means is that God dwells among his people who are the object of his steadfast love. Man is bound to obey the Lord. Disobedience will be countered by divine punishment. But God will never totally abandon his people. No matter how much they turn against him, God never abandons them completely. There's always a remnant that's maintained. The book of Numbers is a striking testimonial to the Lord's providential care of the Israelites. Despite their constant grumbling, they were a hard-necked people. He guided them through the desert. He sustained them with nourishment in the most barren waste, that's the manna and the quail. And he led them to victory in the face of hostile forces. They had a weak army, but they were able to overcome those that they encountered. Despite all their recalcitrance, the Lord was able to bring them to the promised land. So the book of Numbers gives the assurance also that the Lord listens to the prayers of men. Oftentimes Moses interceded with the Lord on the behalf of Israel. And here in this book, we have the example, a number of things like the bronze serpent when they were attacked by the snakes and 3,000 people died. The Lord told Moses to make a bronze snake and put it on a stick and everybody that looked upon that would be cured and would be healed. In modern times, that's a sign used by the medical profession. The stake with the serpent around it, those who looked upon that were cured. And also, 
that when our Lord says in the book of John, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself, talking about the cross, is a reference to this serpent, that the bronze serpent that uh, Moses held up so that people could see it and be cured. So this book of Numbers then brings us up to Jericho. That's the fourth book of the Pentateuch, the fifth and last book of the Pentateuch, which is, as I said, the basis of the whole Old Testament and also referred to constantly in the New Testament, is the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the book of Deuteronomy has 34 chapters and was probably written with traditions that go back to Moses, but the form that we have it in now was produced during the 8th to the 6th centuries before Christ, probably before and after the fall of Israel in 721 in the north. We'll be talking about that when we talk about the book of Kings. And this book, Deuteronomy, means the Deuteros means two or second, nomos means law. So it means the second law, Deuteronomy. Those are two Greek words. And basically, the book of Deuteronomy contains three sermons, three sermons of Moses. Chapters one to four have the first sermon where he gives a kind of a history of their background, how God freed them from Egypt and brought them out into the desert purified them, brought them into the promised land. That's the first sermon. And the second sermon, which is really the heart and soul of the book of Deuteronomy, runs from the end of chapter 4 to chapter 28, I believe it is. And there you have the recount of the Ten Commandments that were given in the book of Exodus, but they're given again in the book of Deuteronomy, the, the Ten Commandments. And Moses is exhorting the people through these sermons to be faithful to Yahweh, to be faithful to the law, to be faithful to the covenant, and to worship only one God, that is the Lord Yahweh, who is the God of Israel. Some scholars refer to the book of Deuteronomy as being oratorical, because almost all of it is these sermons of Moses. The third one is around chapters 29 to 30, in which he recaps what he had said in the previous two sermons. So here you have a moving exhortation to the people by Moses to keep the law. On God's word, obedience will be rewarded and disobedience will be punished. And that's exactly what happened in Israel's later history. So this is called the Deuteronomic law. Moses says, if you keep the law, the Ten Commandments, God will reward you with many children, with good crops, with abundance of material things and peace and security. But if you violate the law, especially by worshiping false gods, then God will punish you over and over again until you repent of that and reject those false gods and return to the true God. Now, a special characteristic of Deuteronomy is the command to centralize the worship of the Lord Yahweh in one place namely in Jerusalem. Other places of worship, such as Dan and Bethel and Shechem, are to be abolished. When they first went into the Promised Land, they had worship places there, but the tendency of the book of Deuteronomy is to centralize the worship of Yahweh in the temple in Jerusalem. That's one of the characteristics of this. So Moses then, all the way through this, is urging them to keep the Ten Commandments. Now, the idea of a temporal reward for keeping the law and punishment for violating it appears very often. 
And this is a theme which recurs in the books of Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, and 1 and 2 Kings, which we'll be taking up in the next segments of this course on the Old Testament. Deuteronomy is quoted three times by our Lord in the New Testament, in St. Matthew's Gospel, in the temptation in the desert, when he's tempted by the devil. Three times Jesus quotes Deuteronomy in refuting the temptations of the devil. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, 6.16, and 6.13, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and thou shalt not worship anything but the Lord thy God, and so forth. Those are three quotes from the book of Deuteronomy that Jesus makes use of in quoting and defeating the devil when he's tempted. So that then kind of summarizes the first five books, the book called the Book of Moses, called the Torah, and it's also called the Pentateuch, which means a book with five chapters to it. It's like really one book, which reveals to us that God is transcendent, that he created the world, we're totally dependent upon him, he's chosen through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's chosen a certain people. They were down in Egypt, then they leave Egypt, they go out into the desert to worship the Lord. He brings them eventually into the Promised Land and establishes them there so that they can be a holy people to worship the Lord God in the temple in Jerusalem. And the background of that is the covenant, which is manifested in the 10 words of Yahweh, which are the 10 commandments. And Moses is constantly exhorting his people that they must keep the Ten Commandments. And so there are all kinds of laws there in Exodus and in Deuteronomy dealing with family, with servants, with slaves, with property, with buying and selling, with worshiping, and all these kinds of laws that are laid down to govern the people so that they will be a holy people and not be like the immoral pagans surrounding them, especially like the Canaanites in the Promised Land where they go. The book of Deuteronomy then leads naturally into the book of Joshua. At the end of the book of Numbers and end of uh, Deuteronomy, Moses dies, Moses is buried near Mount Nebo, and Joshua takes over. In Joshua 1.6, the Lord says, you know, when he commissions him to take the people across the Jordan River, that I will be with you. God is with his people, and he is with Joshua who is a great military leader and commander. So the book of Joshua now has to do with the conquest of the promised land. God promised them this land. It's the land of Cana. It's west of the Jordan River, which goes from north to south and separates present-day Israel from Jordan, which is on the other side. So the, the Israelites are on the other side. They're on Jordan. They have to cross over and God directs them to take the Ark of the Covenant and to start marching across the river. And just as Moses separated the water of the Red Sea, when they crossed over and Pharaoh was following them and then all the Pharaoh's troops were drowned, so also here, when they go out into the river with the Ark, God stops the waters of the Jordan River. They pile up and the chosen people cross over the Jordan River on dry land opposite Jericho. And so the book of Joshua then recounts the conquest of Jericho. Everybody knows about circling the city seven times and blowing their trumpets and all the walls fall down and they go in and conquer Jericho, they conquer Ai. And so the book of Joshua 
is about the conquest of the Holy Land, which took place over perhaps maybe 50 years, 100 years, something like that. It didn't happen all at once. So these books are not intended to be strict historical books the way we look at modern history. They are theological books telling us about God's direction of human history and man's relationship with God. So this then is the story of the conquest of this and the division. You have 12 tribes. Jacob had 12 sons. Remember, they all went down to uh, Egypt, and then they came back. So the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, Judah is one of them, Gad, Reuben, Benjamin, Manasseh, and so forth. And so in the second part of the book of Joshua, there's a description of how the land is designated for the various tribes. They all get a certain part of the Holy Land. Around Jerusalem is where you have the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Up north, you have Ephraim and Naphtali, up north where we call Galilee. And in east and west, the three tribes, as I mentioned, are on the east side of the Jordan River. So this recounts then how they defeated. They didn't defeat all the Canaanites. Some of the cities were too strong. They couldn't take them, but they took most of it. And then they distributed it among themselves. So that's recounted by Joshua. One of the interesting stories is how he sent the spies into Jericho and they were protected by the prostitute Rahab and hidden and protected. And as a result of that, Joshua promised that she and her family would survive, that they would not be killed when they occupied the city. And that's exactly what happened once they conquered the city of Jericho. In this book also, you have this Deuteronomic notion, the law of Deuteronomy, that is, those who are faithful to the law will be rewarded, and those who violate the law will be punished. And it's understood in the Bible in very concrete and material terms. That is, those who are faithful, they survive, they have lots of possessions and a lot of children and so forth. Those that are faithful, those that are not faithful, are punished by the Lord, and often they're destroyed, they're killed in one way or another. So at the end of the book of Joshua, then, we have the occupation of the promised land by the chosen people. And there's a covenant notion of an agreement contract between man and God that you have with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. Now it's repeated by Joshua in chapter 24. And in chapter 24, Joshua says, 24, 15, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He calls upon all of the people to make a commitment to serve the Lord, and that's what they do. They promise that. And so that brings us to the end of the book of Joshua. The next book in the Bible is the book of Judges. The book of Judges is very interesting from a theological point of view. The theology of it is so clear and is stated over and over again that nobody can miss the point. First of all, this tradition of the book of Judges probably was written down in the first form under the time of David and Solomon in the 10th century, and it reached the form that we now have it in after the captivity of Babylon, probably around 550, something like that, the final form of the book as we now have it. But these judges were really military leaders. They're not judges in the sense that we think of today, but they were military leaders who uh, led the people against the Philistines and against their enemies, but they also 
pass judgment on various things in order to solve disputes among the people. But the general theme here is that fidelity to God brings blessing, while infidelity to God brings punishment and misery. So the way it works is like this, and it's stated over and over again, you have about 12 or 15 of these judges. You have a state of peace, and when the people are in a state of peace, then they fall into sin, especially idolatry of the people around them, of the Canaanites. And when they get involved in idolatry, then God punishes them. How does he punish them? He punishes them by having the Philistines and their enemies overrun them and make slaves of them. When they're suffering, they cry out to God and they repent of their sins and ask for forgiveness. God forgives them, there's repentance, he forgives them, and then he raises up a judge, and under that judge, like Samson or Gideon or Japhtha, then he restores them to a state of peace. And each one of these periods covers about 20 years, like a generation. And this principle is stated right at the beginning of the book of Judges, that they went through this sequence. That is, they sinned, they were punished, they repented, and then they're restored to where they were before. And so that's the basic theme that runs behind people like Samson and Deborah and Gideon and Jephthah, the various judges. One of them is a woman, Deborah. So this cycle, it's a, like a theological understanding of history of the period of the judges. Now this period took place about 200 years, probably around 1250 when they occupied Palestine, down to around 1050, 1030 when King Saul comes on the scene and Samuel, which will be in our next segment. So there's about a 200 year period where these judges were operative. It was not a unified land during that time. Each tribe was independent there was no king, there was no unity, it was not a unified country the way we understand it. These were tribes living in various places and we know that these judges, these are stories from the different tribes of their violation of God's law. They didn't worship God the way they should, so he punished them. And then they repented of that, asked for forgiveness. Then he raises up somebody like Jephthah or Gideon or Samson. Of course, almost everybody who knows something about the Bible, even many people who have never read the Bible, they all know about Samson and Delilah, maybe uh, from the movies, but Samson's story indicates that God chose, he elected certain people to lead his people into freedom. There are a number of chapters that are dedicated to Samson because he was such an outstanding man, a tremendous warrior who was able to kill a lion with his bare hands and he killed the Philistines right and left and so forth. But he had a weakness. He had a weakness for beautiful women. And that weakness brought on his destruction. When Delilah finally found out that the source of his strength was his long hair, and she got him to drink too much and to sleep and cut off his long hair, that he lost his strength. And he was blinded and made a slave. But eventually, the hair grew back and he got his strength back and so they have that tremendous story that he's in the temple and they're having a big celebration for the Canaanites and he asked to be placed between the two main pillars of this temple and so with his tremendous strength he puts himself between these two pillars maybe you've seen this in the movies and he pushes them of course and the pillars give way and the whole building comes down 
and all their enemies in there are destroyed, and of course, he's killed in the process. But this is an indication that each of these judges was favored by God in a special way, given special strength as military leaders to liberate the people. Another indication here, too, is that God, no matter how much they rebel against him, God never totally abandons his people. He's always with them, and there's a notion that comes back again and again in the Old Testament of the remnant, that many of them may be killed, many of them may be destroyed, but God never allows all of them to be destroyed, just like Noah. He saved Noah and his family. The eight souls were saved in the great flood. Likewise, when the Israelites were carried off into captivity in Babylon, a few of them survived to come back and rebuild the temple and to restart the chosen people. And this notion of the remnant, which we find in Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets, the true remnant, of course, of this eventually is Jesus Christ, who is the second person of the Blessed Trinity, who takes his flesh from the Blessed Virgin Mary, and his foster's father is Joseph. He's a descendant of David, a member of the tribe of Judah. Now, there is one explicit reference to the book of Judges in the New Testament, and that's in Hebrews in the 11th chapter, where St. Paul sings the praises of the various heroes of the Old Testament, and he mentions the faith of the judges. So these were special people like Moses, who were chosen by God, given a special role in salvation history in order to protect their people, that the people might continue to exist, because there's the promise from God that the Messiah is going to come from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and so forth, from the chosen people, so they can't be totally destroyed. There always has to be a remnant that's going to continue because eventually the Savior of the world is going to come from that remnant. So I'll just conclude now this segment with this, you get this idea of the judges. It's a great book to read, is that there's a state of peace, then they fall into sin, they get involved in idol worship, God punishes them by using the Philistines or somebody else, he punishes them, and they repent, they admit their guilt, they repent, ask for forgiveness, God forgives them, he raises up a judge who fights against their enemies and kills them and restores them to a state of peace. So this is the sequence that the sacred writers give us in the book of Judges. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.